0: And when the Russians started coming through, well, they moved us out of there. I say moved, we marched. Some of us went to uh, Nuremberg, Stalag 11, and some went to Moosburg, which is outside of Munich. And then when the Americans started coming through, while well, they moved us out of there, we marched again, all the way down to Moosburg. And we were there for maybe 10 days before the Americans came through and freed us.
1: The Second World War was a global war that lasted from 1939 to 1945. There's a generation of men and women that made unbelievable sacrifices for our freedom that we share today as Americans. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Luke McLaurin to our program. Luke, welcome to BOT Radio Network. Thank you. You have a story to share because you were part of that great generation You served in the Second World War. But before we get into the details of your experience, first of all, I want to get a little backstory of your family, something that I discovered, McLaren Bakery. Right. Tell us about that famous bakery on Highland Street, and maybe it got its original start somewhere else. Yeah, my parents started the bakery in 1922. It was
0: really a home-type bakery where my grandmother made stuff at home and brought it up to the store. And then from there, it just developed.
1: How many years now, McLaurin's,
0: you said 1920, what was it? 1922 to 1994.
1: Add it up for me, Luke. That ought to be about 72 years. 72 years as a family bakery. Mm -hmm. Do you mind giving your age right now? I'm 93. Mm -hmm. 93 years young, I might say. Where were you when you got news that Second World War was starting? We knew in high school, which was... 39
0: and 40, 41, 42, that it was coming. But I was at home studying English, which I never really learned. But anyway, I was studying English when Pearl happened. My mother called on the telephone to tell me, yes.
1: Did you automatically know that you were going to have to go sign up? Were you waiting to be drafted, or how did that work? Well,
0: when I was in, graduated from high school, well, I went off to college. They came over from Columbus Army Air Base, I was down at Mississippi State, I said come join. So I did and it took about two months for them to call me Then that would be in February of 43.
1: Do you remember the environment with your friends when you talked about it, thinking about going to war? Oh yes, uh-huh. I remember that. We talked about it quite often there in high school. Yes, sure did. And what were some of the things you talked about? Is it related to the war? Well, mostly, which service would you
0: like to go into? That was the main thing. And I wanted to go into the Air Corps because I had gone to college to learn to be an aeronautical engineer. It didn't work
1: out that way, but that's what I started doing. This didn't work that way. Before the war broke out, and maybe before there was even thought of the war, when you were thinking about your future, so it was to go into the aircraft work. I mean, you weren't thinking about taking over the family bakery. No,
0: I was not. My uh, scout master took me up in an airplane two or three different times, and that encouraged me greatly to go into the
1: aeronautics. That'd be pretty exciting. What was a plane like back when you were that young as a boy scout? Well, let's see, it was the uh
0: sportster. It was a side-by-side, side and it had about a 60-horsepower engine and it.
1: It flew real well. I didn't, but he did. Is that the kind you had to wear goggles and a, and oh, a hat? Oh, no. No, it was had, totally enclosed. we enclosed. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, just kind of curious. Okay. Uh, you did some training to be part of a B-24 team. Now, you weren't a pilot, were you, from no, B-24? No, I was a bombardier, navigator. A bombardier and a navigator. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me what those jobs entail. Well, I just dropped
0: the bombs, used the Norden bomb site. I was trained on the Norden bomb site, but I never used it. Uh, I just toggled the switch when they got up and the lead ship dropped while I dropped my bombs at the same time. And as a navigator, we just made sure that we got there and got back.
1: So after you got your training, I guess that was stateside, I'm assuming. All. Mm-hmm. And then you went on to your assignment. Was that in Asia, Europe, or where did you it, go? It was in Europe, yes. Uh,
0: we went overseas on the Kungsholm, which is a Swedish liner. Went to England, stayed there two weeks, and they sent us down to the uh, 15th Air Force
1: in Italy, the 464th Bomb Group. 464. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty strategic bomb group back in the war. Yes, it was. I just did a little search on Google a little while ago and 464 came up, so I know it was very strategic in the war. So how many missions had you flown? Well,
0: actually it went up 20 times, but we came back three times with engines out and then this last time uh, we didn't come back.
1: Something happened and you had to actually bail the plane. Yeah, sure did. Where were you when that happened?
0: Well, we were on a mission to bomb the rail yards in Munich, in the south part of Munich. And we were over the uh, northeast part of Austria there, close to Garden actually, is where we lit. We started having engine problems, and three out of the four engines actually had problems,
1: so we had to bail out. I can't imagine what it's like to be, of course, in the intensity of a wartime, and then you're flying over. That's enemy territory. Yes, it is. And then there's no engines, and you're going down. Absolutely. And, of course, you've got to bail. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell us what happened when you bailed. Did all the crew make it out of the plane? Everybody came home. Yeah, everybody got out and all came home. But
0: uh, this story is on the B-24, the flight deck is approximately... 30 inches above a crawl space, which you go up to the front of the aircraft where the nose gun the navigator and the bombardier are. And I was right there at the bomb bay with the bomb bay doors open, throwing out 50 caliber ammunition. And my co-pilot stepped on my shoulder and I watched him disappear into the clouds. And I turned around and I looked up and my pilot was getting up out of his seat and the light went off in my head. I said, something's wrong. I very quickly crawled to the front of the aircraft, which is about 10 feet, crawled back, put my chute on, and jumped. And I beat my pilot out. I was in the air for about 10 seconds. I pulled the ripcord. Nothing happened. I put both hands on the ripcord and pulled it, and it opened up. And then my chute collapsed in the very top of a tree, and it flipped me upside down, and I lit in snowbank upside down. And it knocked me unconscious. And after I got awake again and got out of that snow bike, which was very difficult to do, I squirmed and kicked and did a bunch of stuff to get out of.
1: Was this a a rural area that you landed in? Oh, absolutely. I've been to Austria. I actually spent a summer there for three months with a mission organization. Mm -hmm. So I traveled pretty much all over the country, from the north to the south, from Vienna down to Salzburg. So I've been pretty much all over the country. do you know about where you were when you landed? Uh, if there's a
0: town, Saul Beldon, an S-A-L-B-E-L-D-E-N, that's
1: the largest town that's close by, that was it. When you came conscious, now you were unconscious for you don't know how long. And I have no idea. But when you came to, you were met by a welcoming committee. Yeah, there were two little boys down the bottom of the hill down
0: there. And, uh, they had a little rifle that was sufficient Were these Austrian boys? Austrian boys, yeah.
1: They held you, and then what took place after that?
0: Well, the younger went down to the village, which was a mile and a half or so away, and then brought back a German that had a bigger rifle. And they took us down to the village and kept us there for two or three days. Then they moved us out of there.
1: All of those in the plane, the B-24 that went down, all of your crew members, you were all together at that time? They, They gathered us all within six hours so you were taken where did you
0: go well to the village and we spent about three days there and then they uh they put us on a truck it was not gasoline powered it was steam powered evidently like you know we had a stanley steamers here that we had built in the united states and it had a tank on the side of it it looked just like a water heater they put a few little chips and stuff in there and then they, about 10 minutes later we took off and it sounded like a Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, <laughs> took us to Munich.
1: That's where you were for how long?
0: Well, we were there about three or four days. They had gathered another crew and there was about 20 of us there. And they put us on a train and took us to Frankfurt, which was the interrogation center.
1: So this whole time you're under armed guard, are you handcuffed or are you, none of your hands or your feet are tied or no, no, anything no. like they, that?
0: They had four guards with us Two in front of us and two behind us. And it didn't take on the train, it didn't take any time at all to go from Munich
1: to Frankfurt. Were you able to have any communication with your comrades? We could talk all the time, yeah. Did you speak German? No. Any of your team members speak German? No. So I'm sure they didn't speak much English. No, but
0: they had a couple of words that we understood. That was about it. And, of course, they had
1: guns, too, and you understood that. We understood the rifles. Right. How were you treated, Luke, in this situation? I can't imagine. I mean, you had to be quite fearful. Or were you? Um,
0: Grow grow on. (laughs) No, I don't think we were fearful for our lives, but uh, we were scared, sure, for whatever might happen, but we thought we'd
1: get out of it. I think this is a good place, too, to mention that Jesus Christ means something very important to you. Absolutely. Were you a Christian prior to going into the war? Yes, sir. I certainly was raised to be a Christian.
0: Tell me what Jesus means to you. Jesus means mercy to me. I say that every morning I get up, I say my prayers. I sit in a chair and have a cup of coffee and I say my prayers. And I say, thank you, God, for your mercy.
1: Of course, you're experiencing that mercy all through this time, even as traumatic and horrifying as being in the hands of the enemy here. Did you still sense God was with you? I knew He was, yes, I did. So you went to a place of interrogation. Can you describe any of that? Oh yeah,
0: I can. When they took us out of the train and took us to the interrogation center, why we were double-timed through Frankfurt. The streets were totally clean, but all the buildings were rubble. There was nothing else there. The Germans threw rocks and bricks at us. But when we got to the interrogation center, why? They gave us a piece of paper and said, put your name, rank, and serial number, and what your group is, and all that. Of course, we'd always been told name, rank, and serial number, so that's all we gave them. I was in solitary confinement for 14 days. They fed us through a little doggy door at the bottom. They let us out one, two or three minute time a day to go to the bathroom. We had to eat one small cup of soup. They called it soup, it was hot water, and two thin slices of rye bread. After two weeks there, where well, they took me up to the major. I can't remember the guy's name, and it bugs me real bad, but I can't remember his name. But anyway, he had attended Oxford University, so he spoke perfect English. He says, come in, Luke, have a seat, have a cigarette, and he handed me an English cigarette. So this is the part for Memphis. He says, Luke, let's see. You graduated from high school from Messick, and you joined the Army in 1943, and he knew everything about me because they had people here in this country that were getting all of that information from the papers. And the one thing from Memphis, he says, how's Ed? I said, Ed, who? He said, Ed Trump, of course. Well, Mr. Trump and I don't travel in the same circle.
1: <laughs> he was talking about the mayor of the city. <laughs> he thought he was talking about. It. So he had that much of detailed information about you. He did. He knew me from backwards and forwards. So how long did that
0: conversation last? Well, I was there about 30 minutes. The only thing he didn't know... Was what the fuses and the bombs were, and I didn't tell him that.
1: You just knew where things I, were.
0: I knew what fuses were in there. We were briefed on that kind of thing as a briefing before we got on the airplane. You went to multiple prisoner of war camps, I understand. That's right. The first camp I was in was Stalag Luft Three, which is in Sagan, Poland. In Stalag Luft Three I was in there barracks that had several rooms, and I was in a room with 12. I was from Memphis, one from Blytheville, one from Brooklyn, one Belgian, and the rest were English. And there was one 70-year-old Englishman there who had been captured on Crete. He was a supply officer when the parachuted in and took him. He didn't give up. He was 70 years old. He was 70 years old. I how serious it was for those Brits. They had to use everybody. Without them, why? We would never have been able to conquer Europe. We couldn't have done it without the base in Britain. And all their help, just couldn't have done it. And when the Russians started coming through, well, they moved us out of there. I say moved, we marched. Some of us went to uh, Nuremberg, Stalag 11, and some went to Moosburg, which is outside of Munich. And then when the Americans started coming through, why they moved to Saturday, we botched again all the way down to Mooseburg, and we were there for maybe 10 days before the Americans came through and freed us.
1: What was that like? Wonderful. I can't imagine. So in the POW camp itself, were you treated fairly?
0: There was no brutality. It was just starvation and filthy.
1: Luke, when you were in these POW camps. The day-to-day, I mean, what was life like? How did you communicate? What were some of the activities that you engaged in? Well,
0: we had uh, Axis Sally Radio all the time that was just blaring constantly propaganda against us, but we had uh, radio of BBC. We got BBC most of the time, and then by by word of mouth, why it just went around. We had escape committees. You had to go before to present what your plan was. Later, I found out in the same camp I was in, there were three tunnels. Quite often, you'd walk around the perimeter. Someone would come up and give you a two or three or four handfuls of dirt, and you would just scatter it out along the perimeter because it was a different color from the top dirt. So you wanted to struff it in as you walked along. So you knew there were tunnels going, but I was there so short a time that I wasn't able to do anything like that.
1: Were there those in the camp when you were that did try to escape? Not while I was there. I was there such a short period right. of time. Yeah. You talked a moment ago about praying and that was something well, that was an important part of your life. We had, I can't call it church service, but we had
0: Sunday school. That would be more like it. Sunday school, we would just dis- discuss the Bible Some of the Englishmen had been there so long, they had uh, Bibles. They had parents that our family had sent them to them, and
1: we could go through it. Even at that point, again, your faith was such an important part of that time in your life. Absolutely. Yes, sir. No doubt about that one. Information about your whereabouts, you came up as missing in action. The news came back to Memphis to your parents that you were missing. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Thanksgiving Day, 1944. Did they get a, a knock on the door?
0: The mailman brought it, yeah, the telegram.
1: Information got out that you were missing from the War Department, I guess.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm, that's correct. Okay. The, the, the group always has a, I keep wanting to say "appeal," but that's German. <laughs> <laughs> that went on for about four months, I
1: understand. Yeah, about four months. It's kind of a unique story what happened when your parents finally discovered that you weren't missing in an action, that you were still alive. You want to tell that story? We were allowed to write one letter and two postcards per
0: month. None of mine ever got through, but I met Ed in POW camp, one of my Boy Scouts confederates there
1: this is somebody back from memphis tennessee that you were in boy scouts with you're in the same pow camp
0: boy scout troop eight (laughs) one of his postcards got through and the mailman came running in the bakery one day he'd read the postcard that tom had written and said miss mac mcmess mac he's alive he's a pow so My mother got on the phone right then
1: and called Ms. Young to tell her that the postman was on his way. How exciting. Yes. That's one time your mom, I'm sure, was thrilled that the postman read your mail. So right. And so after the American troops came in and liberated that area and things became secure, where did they take you? Where did you go from there?
0: Well, I was there for approximately three days, and then it sent the Air Corps in to fly us out on C-47s. They loaded us all up and flew us to Nancy to refuel. And they told us we could get off the aircraft if we wanted to and relieve ourselves and stretch our legs. Nobody got out of that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then they took us to Camp Lahar, uh, at Laharve, Camp Lucky Strike. When I got to uh, Lucky Strike, we were told to take off all our clothes and throw them on the fire. I took my pants off and they stood up by themselves (laughs) and we had to go into the shower, it was an outdoor shower, and then we had to stand there for 30 minutes. They made us soap (laughs) and soap again and soap again. And then they took us out of there and dried us off and then they dusted us with DDT.
1: (laughs) DDT. Now, was your time in the military over at that time?
0: No. I came back to the United States I lost a lot of weight. When I jumped out of that airplane, I weighed 135 pounds. And when I got back to the United States, I weighed 98 pounds. That was the primary loss that I had. And uh, I was given a 90-day leave. And I was given another leave and then another leave till the war was over in the Pacific. And then I got out in December of 45. December 1945. And then I, I don't have good sense. Never did, probably never will now. But anyway, I joined the active reserve, and I flew as a navigator at the two-carrier group out at the airport here. And they got called back to the service, so I spent 21 months in the Korean War. And then my commanding officer, when I was getting out, I asked if I was going to re-up, and I told him, no, no.
1: Look, do you remember any humorous things? Oh, I
0: got to tell you this one at Moosebird, Stalag like 7A. I was in a tent right next to the fence. Of course, it was really razor wire. It was not barbed wire like we know it today. It was just, it'll cut you if you even get close to it. And I was about 10 foot inside, and there was a little dirt road outside. There's a honey wagon. That's where they pump trains out and spray the stuff as fertilizer on the fields. There was no air raid siren, no nothing, and all of a sudden this truck was coming right down the road right outside the fence there, and an aircraft threw a missile into it, and it blew that stuff all over us. I shook for 30 minutes. I was shaking and shaking, and I could not stop. It was bad, (laughs) really, really bad.
1: Were you able to get cleaned up? after I got over to Camp Lucky Strike <laughs> <laughs> three days later. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
0: Everybody had to stand up wind.
1: <laughs> and that was Camp Lucky Strike.
0: That was at Camp Lucky Strike where I got cleaned up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then at Stalag 7A down there at Mooseburg. My uh, pastor had asked me one time, he was going over with uh, a group of the pastors to Mooseburg, and he wanted to know if it, he had never heard of anybody that knew where Mooseburg was. So after I talked with him, I told him, well, that was the best of times and the worst of times <laughs> right there at Mooseburg. I know exactly where that
1: place is. <laughs> oh, that's a great story, Luke. Yeah. After you had been a prisoner of war, you came back to the U.S. for the first time. Who was the first people you laid eyes on? The lady in the
0: harbor, she was holding that torch up there. What was that like? Oh, that was marvelous. I had waved goodbye to her when I went left, and I waved hello again when I got back. (laughs) What does she mean to you? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Because, you know, this is the greatest country in the world. There's none like it, no matter what. No matter how bad things seem, there's always worse everywhere else.
1: So, Luke McLaurin really doesn't have any regrets for the service and the sacrifice he made for this country.
0: No, not a bit. I'm
1: glad to do it. Now, when you left for the first time to go to war, did you have a, a wife or a girlfriend no. behind? No. No, because you were just out of high school.
0: Yeah, I was just barely out of high school. When yeah. I went in because it was 1942 when I graduated, May of 1942.
1: So when did you meet Bonnie? Oh, that was after I got back. Where was the circumstance? Is she a friend of the family, or what happened? How did you meet?
0: We had a double date. The the young lady that I had uh, dated in high school, I had a date with her, and uh, Bonnie had a date with one of my buddies, Bobby Sizemore, that I had gone to Messick with. That's how I met her, on a double date.
1: And, look, how long were you and Bonnie married? Sixty-six years. Sixty-six years. Mm So when did you determine when you got back that going to work in the family bakery was going to be your career? Instantly. Right away? Yeah. Was your parents still actively involved in the bakery then? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yes, sir. They retired in 1960.
1: And I understand that you stopped counting wedding cakes after (laughs) 10,000. That's right. I know the cupcakes and the cakes, cookies, and what else did McLaurin's? I mean, you guys...
0: We had everything. You had everything?
1: We had everything. We were were full-service bakery. I don't think anybody in town was as good as McLaurin's. I mean, everybody. If you wanted a cake, you went to McLaurin's. I do appreciate that. (laughs) I really do. Right now, when you look at our country and you, you look at the future generations, do you think America can continue on and be a great country of the land of the free and the home of the brave? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind
0: whatsoever about it. We do get off track on occasion, but yeah, this is still the greatest country in the world and it always will be. We have the choices to make. This is uh, not standing up for the National Anthem until I spent my time so that people could say, I can do what I want to do. I don't agree with them, but then that's why I went, so they could do
1: that. Luke McLaurin. Thank you so much for allowing us to share these moments together with Bot Radio Network to hear your story. Thank you for your service, for our freedom. And the freedom that I have to be on this radio station right now is for many women like you who fought and sacrificed, served, and many laid their lives down. I'm sure you have friends and possibly dear friends that didn't come back. I
0: had one one of my classmates at Massachusetts. He joined the, the very next day after Pearl Harbor. He was killed on the water canal three months later. A
1: lot of them laid down their lives for us. Well, Luke, again, our appreciation for your time today. Thank you for joining Bot Radio. Thank you for having me.